Morning, everybody. I'm sorry if I sound like I'm full of cold. It's because I'm full of cold. Um, Alex believes in sharing. Um, when I was um, when the, the list came out uh, with possible um, ooh, miracles uh, to speak on, um, I have to say I I shared a flicker of frustration, as Steph mentioned the other day, that um, I was sort of looking down the list and going, oh, oh they're all healing and. Anyway, and then I saw water into wine, and I thought, I want to do that one. Not just because I like wine, which I do, but um, um, because um, I just thought it's important as well to remember some of the other miracles that Jesus did that weren't only healing. And I've always actually loved this particular miracle anyway. So um, this morning, we're going to look at water into wine. So this is from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I'll just read it, um, first of all. Um, I'm reading from the NIV. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This was the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put put their faith in him. So, There were several things that I've kind of been mulling over about uh, this particular uh, miracle. It's the first one that he does, and he does lots of them. He does healing, of course. He casts out demons. He walks on water. quite like to do that one. He conducts the weather. He'd be a useful guy to have around today, wouldn't he? Stop that wind out there. Multiplying food, healing, uh, raising the dead. Uh, But... This, this particular one, I think, is really interesting for uh, various reasons. And so there are a few things that I just wanted to highlight about the story itself, and then a couple of things that I really felt God was sort of saying through it. I don't think it's insignificant that Jesus' first miracle took place at a wedding. Because a wedding's a covenant, isn't it? It's a covenant between two people for life. We're looking forward to Joe and Ellie's wedding coming up. And obviously, as uh, the church, we are looking forward to... Uh, Jesus, our bridegroom, coming back for us at the end of time. He's the, we're, we're looking forward to the wedding feast of Jesus coming back and um, coming back for his church. And so I think it's not insignificant that actually this particular miracle, this first sign that Jesus did, took place at a wedding. It was actually pretty local to where Jesus lived. Um, Cana is apparently about eight or nine miles from Nazareth. And Lots of people believe that quite possibly this was um, a family wedding. It was a connection to do with Jesus' family, which is possibly why Mary then got involved when the wine ran out. 
because actually a lot hung on a, a wedding. It was, uh, it was the reputation of the family and you obviously wanted to put on a good feast, a good, a good celebration and so on. And if the wine ran out, that was actually really not a good thing at all. I think it's interesting that it took place on the third day as well. Um, it very, right at the very first verse, it says on the third day. Because in the Bible, the third day often signifies new birth and transitions from old to new. The third day is when Jonah gets spewed out of the whale. Um, the third, Jesus rises, doesn't he, after uh, the resurrection happens on the third day. And so I think that actually it's not also uh, an insignificant detail that actually this took place on the third day. And John takes care to mention it in his story. So I, I don't think that that is an insignificant thing because actually by Jesus turning water into wine, he's actually signifying the changing of the old covenant to the new covenant that he came to fulfill. He came to change from the old to the new. Mary is, uh, I think, really fascinating in this account. He, he says, woman, why do you involve me? Uh, to us, that sounds like that might, might sound a bit offensive. Why are you calling a woman? I mean, actually, if someone came to me and went, woman, I'd be like, sorry. But actually, in those days, that wasn't um, uh, a sign of dishonor at all, actually. And um, I believe in Jewish culture, you know, the relationship mother to son is quite significant. But I think Mary is, she kind of comes to Jesus because... Uh, well, she knows, and she's known ever since he was, before he was born, that he was the son of God. She's treasured in her heart all these years that he's the son of God. I think, I mean, it's not a lot said in the Bible, but I think it must have been, it would have been fascinating to know. I'd love to have a chat with her one day when I reach glory and find out what was it like bringing up Jesus, you know. Was he, was he ever kind of like, did he ever do anything that was a bit, you know, cheeky or a bit, I mean, he probably didn't do anything naughty because he's without sin, is he? But actually, you know, did he play practical jokes? You know, what, what was he like? I mean, you know, I could tell you plenty of stories of my kids, practical jokes they play on each other. But what was it like raising the Son of God? I mean, you know, that, that must have been quite a challenge. I think as well, I mean, Jesus would have known the stigma that would have been attached to Mary, the fact that you know, she was pregnant before she was married, um, what that would have meant for her reputation in the community. And he does actually honour her in the situation, although he's reluctant. It's interesting because he says, my time has not yet come. Uh, but she doesn't, it's like she doesn't take no for an answer. She just turns around to the servants and says, do whatever he says. So it's almost as though Mary kind of pushes Jesus into a corner and gets him to do something, which is quite interesting because you kind of, don't imagine that the Son of God could be made to do something that he wasn't particularly ready to do. But I think that this particular incidence with Mary and Jesus really speaks of the honour that he had for his mother. And the fact that he then follows through in um, actually effectively answering the, the request that she comes to make of him, I think just shows that honour and that respect and that love that he has for Mary in a very kind of intimate way. It's not something that the guests at the wedding would have known about. Probably only the servants and Mary actually knew about this particular encounter. I was listening to uh, somebody talking about it and it was that their sort of interpretation was that actually Mary comes to Jesus because she knows that Jesus will know what to do because we know that Jesus does always know what to do, doesn't he? Um, if we ask him, he can tell us what to do, what the next step is. 
At one point, I was toying with the idea of trying to show a video clip. I don't know, has anyone seen, um, there's adverts going around for The Chosen. It's kind of an app that's coming out on the internet. It's uh, a group of people who've got together, and they are producing videos that are about Jesus, about the life of Jesus. And it's going out on an app that you can download for free. You can watch, you can certainly watch at least a season for, without paying a thing. They ask you if you want to pay it forward. So the idea is that you can pay an amount that then means that then the, the app and the, the videos can go to someone somewhere else in the world and that they can watch them. It's an interpretation. You know, there's been obviously a lot of debate about how accurate it is and how accurate it's not. And I, you know, don't want to get into that. It's an interpretation. But the, the video that was to do with turning water into wine, um, I wasn't quite sure how I'd do it logistically because I'd have had to have played it off my phone because I'm... Um, it's not available on YouTube, this particular clip. But the clip where Jesus turns water into wine is really interesting because it's obviously there's the wedding, there's people talking, and it sort of the camera's going from one chat to another chat. And there's a, a, it sort of focuses in on one of, I think, the, the disciples who before had, who'd been called had been working as a stonemason. And he's talking to. Um, a lady, another guest at the wedding, or another disciple, I don't know. And as he's talking about the fact that he'd left his father's business and gone into the stone masonry business, it then the camera then moves to the moment where Jesus is in another room, separate, where the servants have filled all the uh, pots with water, and he's turning the water actually into wine. And it's at the moment where Jesus is sort of praying, and the, the miracle is actually taking place, that you overhear the sound of this particular disciple talking to this lady about stone masonry. And he, as the water's kind of changing, this disciple's saying, the thing about stone masonry is that the moment you start chipping into that stone, there's no going back. You're committed, and you've got to keep going. And I think that that interpretation was really interesting for me. I thought, that because obviously Jesus knew that that this moment there would be no going back from. This was the moment at which people were going to start finding out very publicly he was the son of God. And so I thought that the timing of that was really interesting. So, you know, if you um, have seen the app and have a chance to, then check out that little um, excerpt. But that kind of brings us on to um, the idea of the pots, which obviously are quite significant in this story. The pots that um, are mentioned were stone pots, which would have been quite valuable. Um, they were quite significant because they were used for ritual cleansing, which is to do with the old priestly law from Leviticus. If they'd been made of clay, then they would end up having to be destroyed because they didn't remain pure. The reason that they used the stone ones for purification was because they didn't Something to do with the stone, I'm not entirely sure, I'm not a scientist. Ask Paul, he's a science teacher, he can probably explain it. But um, the stone ones were more valuable, one, I think, because they took longer to make, but two, because they lasted longer, and three, because they had this element of the fact that they weren't subject to impurity laws. And so the suggestion that there were these pots sitting around in this house where the wedding was taking place would suggest that either it, there was, uh, it was a priestly home or that actually they were just a very devout home that followed the rituals of the law, the, the ritual cleansings and that sort of thing. They wanted to follow the, the scriptures. They wanted to do the right thing. And I think it's really interesting that then Jesus uses them for this miracle because 
He's kind of these pots that symbolize the old law, the ritual cleansing, and so on. He's doing something very radically different with them and signifying that new covenant that he's bringing. And I think as well, um, yeah, it's to show the new, the bringing of the new covenant, the fact that he's coming to bring a new covenant. He's coming to do away with the old law and make a way where a relationship with God one to one is possible. He's coming to bring that new wine into uh, new wineskins that he talks about in Mark 2, um, verse 22. I think he also uses them because of the volume, because of the amount they hold. It's interesting that uh, I found out, I was there trying to do maths, and I'm not very good at maths because I'm an English teacher, but whether you look at uh, English gallons or American gallons, again, is another debate, but it talks in the Bible about them holding 20 to 30 gallons, these pots, um, and six times 20 to 30 gallons it equates to somewhere in the region of about six to 900 bottles of wine. I don't suppose Joe and Ellie are planning on that much wine at their wedding. But that's a lot of wine. And so obviously, you know, Jesus is aware that, you know, a big party, it's going to go on for probably another two or three days. They're going to need lots more wine. Um, so perhaps another reason why he chooses to use these pots, because they hold a lot of liquid. I think another significant thing to notice is the bit about the fact that he uses water. Now, water in those days wasn't very clean. You wouldn't drink water because it was full of bugs and it would make you ill. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever been to a country where you had to put water purifying tablets into the water before you could drink it, and it makes it taste like a swimming pool. It's pretty horrible. But I think in this country, we can quite often take water for granted because it's freely available. You just turn on a tap. It's something that's necessary for life. If you don't have water, you're going to die. Um, and it's, for us anyway, it's inexpensive. It's not a luxury item. But Jesus takes something that's really, really ordinary, that we consider ordinary, like water, and he turns it into wine. And obviously, wine is something that we have at parties, at weddings. It's, or just at the end of the day when you need a glass. We've had an inspection in school this week. I needed a glass of wine at the end of the week. But um, wine in the Bible often represents grace, doesn't it? Because um, and that's you, why we use it when we take communion. It's a symbol of Jesus' blood shed for us. There's a verse in Psalm that says, God, God provided wine to gladden the hearts of, hearts of man, gladdens human hearts. It, it um, obviously isn't to advocate drunkenness. Okay, I'm just throw that one in there. But actually, God, wine is God's idea, which I think is pretty cool. And um, he turns something very ordinary, the water, something that we drink every day because we need to live, but he, he turns it then into something that's quite um, special. The fact that it's mentioned that it's um, the best wine that Jesus produces. This isn't just cheap wine. It's not like your bottom shelf in the supermarket, five quid a bottle kind of thing. This is top shelf um, expensive, and we're talking six to 900 bottles of it. I wouldn't mind tasting some of that. I wonder if there'll be some available in heaven. So I think that that's really significant in this particular story. So you've got the timing of it, the fact that Jesus was a bit reluctant, actually, to step forward and do this, but that he honors his mother's request. And he, he does it anyway. And he knows that this is the moment at which he's going forward. Um, and that, obviously, this is the, the moment at the... Uh, where the, fulf the fulfilling of the prophecies is going to start, that all the stuff that's been foretold about him is going to happen. So having 
sort of thought as I was thinking through all the different sort of symbols of the story, the fact that it's about a wedding, the fact that it's, you know, the, the, the story with his mother and um, him honouring her, and then just the symbols that are represented in the story of the pots, the water, the wine. I just felt there were a couple of things that kind of God was speaking to me and perhaps us through um, this particular story um, as we looked at it. And one of those is that idea of the transformation of ordinary to extraordinary. Um, Let's face it, all of us without Jesus are pretty ordinary, aren't we? But it's Jesus in us that makes us extraordinary. I thought it was... uh, it was really significant what Paul was saying last week about the fact that it's actually the Holy Spirit in us that does things. It's not us of ourselves. And maybe this is partly why I felt that sort of, "Mm," when I saw all the lists about healing, is because sometimes, and I'm being honest here, sometimes I actually have at times thought that when I prayed for people, people got worse. And that that was something to do with me, that actually it was my fault and I wasn't being spiritual enough or something. And um, and I know that healing is, is one of those issues when it's really difficult to understand sometimes why God doesn't answer, and sometimes he does, and sometimes he doesn't. And sometimes you really, really want God, God to answer, and it just doesn't seem to happen. And there were times when I did honestly think, oh gosh, I better not go and pray for them because they'll just get worse because every time I pray for someone, they get worse. And then I have to tell myself, actually, no, that's not true. Because in my lifetime, I've seen people healed. I've seen myself healed. So there's this kind of battle going on inside myself. And I think that for me anyway, the the whole uh, focusing on healing, it brings that conflict inside me to the fore that's sometimes not very comfortable. And that's not that that's a bad thing. And it's not that we don't need challenging because we do. And I, I do. And, you know, so actually it's a good thing to be focusing on the fact that Jesus did lots of healings. But I wanted us to remember that, um, you know, as Paul said, it's Jesus in us, it's the Holy Spirit in us that does the healing or produces the miracles. It's not us. We can't, in of ourselves, we can't do anything because of ourselves, we're very ordinary. We're just water. Jesus is the wine. Jesus brings the extraordinary. And that kind of brought me onto this idea, I suppose, of that actually... Um, Jesus talks about only needing faith the size of a mustard seed. He talks in Matthew 17, verse 20, that all you need is faith the size of a mustard seed. And sometimes, to be quite honest, my faith has been the size of a mustard seed. Um, I actually bought some in today. It's a little visual demonstration. You probably can't even see one. They're that small. They're really, really tiny. Oh, there's one on the, other, on the screen. So they're really, really small. But Jesus talks about how the fact that actually... A mustard seed will then grow into a tree that size. That's a mustard tree um, next to it. So actually, sometimes it's just really important to remember that because God is in us and the Holy Spirit is in us, that's, that's all we need. It's just that little bit. And then God does the rest. I can testify to several times where I've prayed pretty much mustard seed-sized prayers that seemed pretty faithless at the time. Um, one, one time, and this, this was a while ago, I'd been involved in worship team in our home church, um, singing mainly, actually, and playing flute. 
because I was a bit too scared to play piano at the time. Didn't think I was good enough. And um, I went off to university and I joined the CU and I was playing in singing in the worship team there. And I didn't own a flute, um, but I quite often, whenever I could get hold of one, hold of one would use it to play in worship, improvise and so on. And I came home one weekend and I'd been talking about the frustration of the fact that I kind of wanted to be able to play flute more often in worship and I didn't own one and I couldn't afford one because I was a student and didn't have any money. And someone said to me, well, why don't you just pray and ask God to provide you with one then? And I thought, yeah, right, you know. God's into healing things and raising people from the dead and why does he care about giving me a flute? But um, so I sort of thought, oh, well, okay, I suppose, you know, I ought to, you know, do that thing. And I prayed literally a mustard seed sized prayer and went, okay, God, well, if you want me to be involved in worship and play my flute, then you'll have to provide me with one. Amen. And I just completely forgot about it. And I went back to university. And within two weeks, someone came up to me, another, la- another girl in the CU, and she said, she, I, don't, I don't really know where this has come from. She said, but God's just told me to give you my flute. Because I learned to play, and I don't really play anymore, but God told me to give it to you. And I was just blown away because I never expected, in all honesty, never expected God to answer that prayer. And he did. I mean, it's not like, uh, you know, top of the range Yamaha silver flute, but it, it's, it's a decent flute. Um, two of my kids learned uh, quite a few grades on it as well. And, you know, God answered that prayer. Um, Another more recent example, um, Ash and I were just remembering yesterday, was, you know, the kids wanted to learn to drive. We reached the stage where Karis was 17, she was going to get a provisional license, and we looked at the cost of insuring a learner driver on our family car and um, realised that that was probably not going to be feasible. And, um, you know, we thought, well, we can insure her for a bit, she could do a bit of practice, and then we'd have to take the insurance off again because it was too much and we couldn't afford it. And um, I just said to Ash... um, we just, need to, we just need another car. We need a little car, a cheap car, to ensure that the kids can learn to drive in. And Ash was sort of like, yeah, I can't really afford that either. But, you know, so we just sort of prayed a prayer. Well, Lord, we could really do with a car for the kids to learn to drive in. Thanks. And, and, and again, it wasn't a very faith-filled prayer. It certainly wasn't on my behalf. Anyway, I don't know, Ashley might have been filled with faith. But Within, again, uh, probably a month or maybe less, I don't know, we had a phone call, a family friend of Ashley's parents, um, her husband had passed away, and she had a small car that he'd really not driven very much. It sat in the garage most of the time, not going anywhere. It was in very, very good condition for its age, and she didn't want the bother of selling it. Would Ashley and Sonia like it for the kids to learn to drive in? And that was literally the way the message came through. And so we were kind of like, whoa, okay, you know, how often is it that you get a free car? I mean, sometimes happens, doesn't it? It wasn't a Mercedes, we should have specified. But then maybe it would have been more expensive to insure. So, yeah, so we, we uh, were given uh, our, this, our little car. It's, it's not very pretty. Um, the kids named it Humperdink because they said it's an ugly car, it needs an ugly name. So it, it kind, of <laughs> kind of looks a little bit like Postman Pat's van, but silver. Um, But actually, the main point is, God provided it. It had almost no miles on the clock. Um, It's not very big engine, so it's cheap to insure. And um, it's got three and a half of our kids through their driving test. And apart from having to replace a couple of tires, we've we've almost had no issues with that car at all. We've paid for services and MOTs, but actually, it's kind of almost miraculous that a car that age hasn't had anything more significant go wrong with it. And 
you know, instances like that, I can just say, where God has provided in a way that was beyond our expectation at the time. Our faith was really about that big. And I think that that's um, something that's really significant in this particular story that Jesus brings, is that actually we, we don't have to have a lot of faith. We only have to have a little bit, and then we can let God, get, let the Holy Spirit do the rest. The other thing that I just really feel that is significant um, about this story is the fact that it speaks to abundance and how much God loves us. The, the significance, I think, of the fact that there's these six pots that equate to the equivalent of about six to 900 bottles of wine um, is, is abundant, isn't it? I mean, actually, that's more than they would have needed for the wedding. That probably would have been enough to keep the family going for a, a considerable amount of time after the wedding as well. And I just think that that speaks to us of the fact of of how much God loves us and how much he wants to supply our needs. It's not something that we have to earn. It's not a reward that uh, we earn by being good Christians and, um, you know, trying to keep all the rules and regulations that are in the Bible or anything like that. It's about the fact that we are God's children. Um, It was that sort of verse from Matthew which talks about how God knows how to give good gifts to his children just as you give good gifts to your kids. I mean, if one of your children comes to you and says, I'm hungry, you don't turn around and say, well, there's the bin over there, go and find something to eat. You you find them something that's nutritious. You find them something that they'll enjoy eating. Because actually, God loves us and he loves us more than we can possibly love our children. I think when you become a parent you kind of realise just how much love it's possible to have for another human being, even when they keep you up all night and they throw up all over the place and make a mess and throw things around, destroy things, drive the car through the hedge, that sort of thing. The fact is is that actually it's not possible to love a human being more than you can love your children. And God loves us even more than we can possibly love our children. And I just think that that's... It's something that is almost too difficult for us to grasp, isn't it? How much God loves us. And the fact that he wants to supply our needs. And not only our needs, but sometimes our wants. And he wants to do that with abundance. He wants to not just provide a little bit, but he wants to provide a lot. Um, along, Like the, the, the story with the wine. That he provided not just what they needed for the wedding, but he provided more. He provided an abundance. And... I just sort of felt as though maybe there might be some people here who, I don't know, maybe you've got a situation that you've been uh, waiting for God to move in for a long time, Um, or maybe a situation that looks impossible, that maybe your faith isn't any bigger than this. Maybe it's an area where you need to see financial or physical provision, like a car. Maybe Maybe it's an area of healing. Maybe it's a relational area, I don't know. But maybe there's uh, some people here who you feel as though it's an impossible situation. You feel as though your faith isn't big enough. You feel as though the only thing that's going to come through here is a miracle and you're not even sure you're going to get one. And so I just wondered whether maybe um, there were some people who were in that situation and that maybe actually it might be helpful that you'd like to come and take a mustard seed that maybe you'd like to have somebody pray for you in that situation. God talks about us needing to pray and keep on praying. And so sometimes we do just have to keep on on knocking. But 
But yeah, I just sort of felt that maybe for one or two people that might be significant, that maybe you'd just like to come and take a mustard seed and that maybe you'd like someone to just pray for you in that particular situation. So yeah, I'll hand back over to Graham, but um, there we go.